from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. My guest on this show is Brandon Montclair. He is the author of Luther Van Beethoven, The Final Symphony. He is also the writer of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which is actively being produced as a cartoon for Disney. We should expect to see it this year. So before we get into Beethoven, I talked to Brandon about what happened with Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl, why the series ended, yet how Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur still sell well. Next, we talk about Ludwig von Beethoven and his influence on culture. And we talk about some of those influences on 20th century cartoons and movies. Then we get into the book he has written for Z2 Comics, Beethoven, The Final Symphony. We had this conversation in December, so the book is already out. It celebrates Ludwig von Beethoven's 250th birthday, as of 2020, with an anthology of comics inspired by the maestro's life and music. It contains fantasy and history, fables and ghost stories, adventures and romance. There is also a deluxe edition with a limited run of 1,200 copies, a slipcase and a double vinyl LP set. Brandon tells me about the artist on the book, and then I kick back with the creator and ask Brandon the nine questions I like to ask all my guests, including the one that got away, podcasters, listen up to this one, and also when he took a risk. If you've ever thought about buying a comic book store, this is a story you want to hear. So please join me in welcoming my guest, Brandon Montclair. Here now on Creator Talks. Brandon, welcome to Creator Talks. Nice to be here. It's great to have a chance to talk to you again. We have met before. You may not remember our meeting. We have, yes. Do you remember? Not by name and not by the little um, image that comes up. Okay. I'm very forgettable. <laughs> I'll place it for you. It was a few years ago. It was at the comic book shop in Wilmington, Delaware. Okay. And you were there with Amy Reader, and you were signing copies of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur and Rocket Girl. And this will bring back the conversation. For the first time, you heard a term you had never heard before that Amy brought up. And she said she had strong ankles. She had cankles. And you said, I never heard that before. And she goes, yeah, it's like calf ankles. My calf goes right into my ankle, and they're very strong. Mm, mm. <laughs> Maybe you don't remember. Yeah, it's like, you know, I remember the signing. I remember going down. It was a great source. The one and only time I ever made it down there. You were in the danger room. Yeah, that's a great place. And I'm not just saying that. It was a really impressive store. Especially if I was a kid, I would have loved to have nearby. If someone told me cankles today, I wouldn't know what they're talking about. So I guess it was in one ear and out the other, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, the rest of it sounds correct. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> well, back then you were promoting those books in Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur did very well for both of you. A lot of critical acclaim. And it ended around issue 47. Why was that? Well, they were wrapping it up. It was always a funny book. It's no secret that it wasn't really a book designed for comic shops. It had a lot more sales when it was collected. And it was also available through Scholastic, the book fairs that are in schools and whatnot. But it was still at the same time a Marvel monthly book. Pretty much, and I had worked at DC for a few years, but Marvel and DC have their similarities. Um, when you're going through that type of stuff month in, month out, there's really not too much difference in the way that we had to make Moon Girl as somebody would have to make Batman or X-Men or Spider-Man or whatever the case may be. So it was um, always a struggle to kind of keep it up 
not production wise because everyone has to do it it was always a round peg in a square hole but it did well through collections and kind of went that way uh some of the things were shifting and at the time they were going to wrap up squirrel girl and ms marvel was relaunching without willow writing it anymore uh so they said okay you know let's wrap up moon girl and double dinosaur and I think 47 was just what we're at. One could have made the argument, hey, let's go to 50 and kind of a celebration of it. But, you know, they were going to end it at that point anyway. So 47 was what we were kind of told to be the last issue. And that worked out for me. Natasha Bustos, who had done fill-ins here and there, but had done most of the first 43 issues, had just had a baby. It's now about a year old, I guess, right? A little over a year. And so Aletha Martinez was taking over for art. She was only doing four issues at the time, and we didn't quite know what the history is going to be. So it seemed like uh, an okay time to end it. The cartoon at the time was kind of like in development. I'm not a Hollywood guy, right? It's on again, it's off again, it's all these different things. Um, Now it's in production and they're doing a whole season and it's going to be out. I think it's going to be 2021, the summer. There hasn't been a lot of announcements on it because there's been so many different changes with Disney and kind of Disney's relationship with Marvel, but it's being made and they got literally hundreds of people working on it, animators and obviously the voice actors and administrative people and everything else. So, yeah, I, I wonder if the timing was a little different, if they would have kept Moon Girl around, but then you have COVID and so who knows, right? So uh, that's a long way to say that it wasn't performing as well as superhero books do for like the Wednesday Warriors. They thought there was some slowdown in the book market for it. So they just took a step back from all that stuff for a bit. And before they ever decided whether or not they're going to do any kind of relaunches or step back in, you know, a lot of different things have happened. And she's still a part of the the Marvel Universe. And, you know, I look forward to her popping up someplace. And uh, Marvel has since put out their own kind of low cost editions where you get like 12 issues for 12 or 13 bucks. And they're doing the whole series of not just Moon Girl, but Squirrel Girl, Ms. Marvel. Wasp is another one. So a couple of things that they're trying. If you see them, you can get them in comic shops, but they're really bookstore designed. So kids don't have to spend 20 bucks for six issues. You know, they get the 12 issues for 12 or 13 bucks. It's a little bit of a smaller trim size and excel like a lot more pages. So it's uh, it's still coming out. But uh, part of me says 47. Wow, who can believe it? Because, you know, Devil Dinosaur, when Kirby did in the 70s, only lasted nine issues. And then 47, as far as a new launch, I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but I think comics is changing, right? Especially monthly comics. So I don't know if there'll ever be a new character launching with a number one that hits 47 ever again. You know, there'll be plenty of new characters, but just not in that format. But then at the same time, you also say, well, I went 47. What went wrong? Why couldn't we get it to 147, you know? (laughs) Well, if before any of us ever started, whether that's any of the creators or anybody at Marvel or, or anybody who's a fan, said, hey, would you take 47 issues? Of course you'd take it. No, that's a great run. Most people don't make it that far anymore. Like 147 is almost unheard of. Most books reboot, have a whole different team, and it's another volume. And that's just it, yeah, because like they did try relaunches with Ms. Marvel, right? And I think with Squirrel Girl got one relaunch. They never relaunched Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur because they found that with Ms. Marvel and Squirrel Girl that the regular readers who were reading it just got confused by the relaunch, right? They didn't understand new number ones. And then you had new number ones on the different collected volumes. So they said, okay, let's just do this one straight up. So as much as I don't think another book's going to hit 47, it wasn't solely because Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur were so great that it was a sales juggernaut for 46 issues and then 47 fell off. It was just, it was always just uh, an oddball thing to do. And that's hard to do at Marvel and DC, anything that kind of deviates from the norm because you have so much going on every day of the week. And it's such a system of how you feed things in. What's the expression? The uh, crooked nail that gets hammered. So 
<laughs> and, I, and I hope that doesn't sound negative. It, it no, just, like I said, get it. just the realities of doing it. And the other end of that is that despite it being odd, despite it not fitting into their normal monthly projections for sales and all that other stuff, they stuck with it for 47 issues and put out a lot of material. And now they have a viable character that's been in three or four video games at this point. And like I said, a big cartoon series coming out of it. So as much as there were struggles because it wasn't Spider-Man or Batman, there was a lot of support from a lot of people. Everybody at some point or another, Marvel really had to say, we need to keep doing this because it's a cool book and it's reaching different people. It was a lot of fun to work on. And it's funny because there's a nice big long run, but stuff I was doing before that, when I was at DC, I worked first in Batman offices as an editor and then at Vertigo. So it's like, I, and I never said, oh, I'm, I love kids stuff. Let me do a book for young girls. I grew up saying I want to do Wolverine fighting the Punisher in a sewer. That would be a cool comic. So it was uh, <laughs> it's, uh, just how it happens. I do have two daughters. My oldest is 11. My youngest is four. So she's just starting to kind of appreciate books and whatnot. And I grew up with brothers. So it was nice to be able to have a book that my older daughter very much likes. And I'm sure my younger daughter is going to start liking it any day now. It's been a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad it found its audience, even through like the trades, collected editions that, you know, it's not the content. It was just the way it was presented. It worked better in that fashion. And I think that's going to happen with a lot of comics that are more niche or a little different from the mainstream or what people expect. It may happen to all of them at some point where it goes to collected or to digital. It's just the cost of trying to make these things now and distribute them is so expensive compared to how it used to be. Yeah. And the numbers reflect that, you know, kind of across the board and you're, and you're seeing COVID kind of being... Is it really changing things or is it just accelerating yeah. what probably happened in five or six years anyway? What we're here for today is your other work, Beethoven. Let's start with the man, the music. How much familiarity did you have with Beethoven's work before writing this anthology coming up with Frank Marafino? Much like I never expected to do a thousand pages of Moon Girl for nine-year-old girls, I never expected that I would do a Beethoven book. It's not like I was a huge fan, always dying to do it. I, it that being said, I do like Beethoven. You live in the city, so it's not you're going to go to the symphony. It's the pastoral. Let's go see it. I always did like Beethoven's music, but I wasn't a super fan of it by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the way that came about is Josh Frankel, one of the owners and kind of the day-to-day -day guy also at Z2, recently relocated to LA, but uh, he was a New York guy and I was a New York guy and we would just hang out. I always like interesting things. Like my first professional job in comics was working for Tokyo Pop. And I wasn't even a huge manga fan. Back then they were in Los Angeles and I was in LA at the time. And they just seemed like they were doing different things, right? They were distributing to bookstores. They were uh, kind of marketing it different and had a different kind of fan base. So I see Z2 kind of doing that with his music books. And it just seemed interesting to me. And when the cool project come along, Beethoven did. It was a lot of fun. And I really jumped into it. A lot of research had to go into our being able to do this book because there is a lot of biographical information and a lot of stuff inspired that I certainly didn't know before I started. But a lot of that was Frank. You mentioned Frank Marafino, the co-writer, who I've known for even longer. He wasn't an expert either, but he was the one who kind of rolled his sleeves up and said, hey, here's some cool uh, aspects that, that would make for good short stories. And we just kind of took it from there. And every story in it is so different uh, and with a very different style of art that it was, uh, like I said, very fun and very interesting. If you're like a Beethoven biographer, I don't know if there's anything profound that you'll learn from this. Just kind of a bunch of creators who said, hey, let's do some cool stuff. And I think it came together great. 
I learned some things about Beethoven, and there were actually things you shared on your Twitter account. There was a Vox podcast, Switched on Pop, where they talked about Beethoven and how music changed in terms of the live performance that before people would clap during the performance or, you know, just come in however. But then, for whatever reason, once Beethoven's music started being played, they had to dress up, couldn't make a sound until the very end. This ties into comics, which I find fascinating, is that they almost became over time gatekeepers mm-hmm. of classical music. Like you had to go in a certain way, and some people would actually threaten people if they didn't behave a certain way, which is like mm-hmm. they own the music, and this is how you should treat it, you know? So I thought that was really interesting that you shared that podcast. That was something that came up throughout, but if anyone picks up the book, a German performer, Alice Sarah Ott, who's a pianist with us, all kinds of classical music, but is modern, obviously. She was very big on that. And her story is basically about that. Like if Beethoven was alive today, he would be surprised by a lot of things, uh, not the least of which is how uh, formalized the listening experience has become. So, and that's kind of a good, both a license and an ethos for doing a comic book based on Beethoven. Just like, hey, like, you know, yeah, why, why does everything have to be so starchy and formal? So let's have some fun with it because he was an innovator. He was a guy who liked to find new ways of doing things and to certainly break with convention. Very inspiring to listen to the music, think about it, how iconic it is and present it with a bunch of stories. I don't want to say that don't take themselves seriously because it's not like it's a humor or slapstick or anything like that. I think if you're too precious with any kind of story, it comes a very boringly told story. So we try to keep uh, the fun and the innovation and the speed up with the changing stories. He is still popular in culture. My exposure to his music, just <laughs> thinking back to Peanuts, look at Schroeder. Ah, uh, very good. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he loved to play Beethoven, and he was, I guess he was kind of a gatekeeper about it because Lucy just couldn't understand his fascination with Beethoven. What kind of Christmas music is that? Beethoven Christmas music. What has Beethoven got to do with Christmas? Everyone talks about how great Beethoven was. Beethoven wasn't so great. What do you mean Beethoven wasn't so great? He never got his picture on bubblegum cards, did he? Have you ever seen his picture on a bubblegum card? Hmm? How can you say someone is great who's never had his picture on bubblegum cards? And there have been other applications in the movies. One of my favorite films is The Clockwork Orange. The main character, Alex, Malcolm McDowell played that character. He was conditioned against violence, and he loved Beethoven. And as a, an accident, actually, they were playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony while he was being conditioned. And then he began to hate Beethoven, which was just anathema <laughs> to him because he never wanted that. Bliss and heaven. Oh, it was gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. It was like a bird of rarest spun heaven metal, or like silvery wine flowing in a spaceship. Gravity all nonsense now. As I sluished, I knew such lovely pictures. It certainly transcends the opera house experience, right? And it likes about, obviously doing comics with it, Bob Orange, like you're talking about. Soylent Green, right? When they send uh, Edward G. Robinson to his death, they're playing Beethoven's Sixth. 
and what a wonderful world it used to be. And now, you know, it's kind of this dystopian future. It definitely transcends and breaks into all kinds of stuff. And that's always been interesting to me, especially working in comics. For a long time, a throwaway medium, literally, right? Mm-hmm. You read a book and then you fold it up and you throw it in the trash. And that's, you know, right. All the people who said I would be a millionaire, my mother never threw out my old comic books, right? So, yeah, you need to take anything so seriously. You know, it's like anything else. It's like, I'm from the Star Wars generation movies. And it's like, yeah, that stuff was really formative. And I was an English major. Shakespeare's tough because he, like Beethoven, is transcended, right? But there are people who say, oh, this is art and this is high form. If the audience doesn't care about it, then what are you really doing, right? So I obviously have a lot of respect for people who make comics uh, because I'm a comic maker. But, um, you know, who knows uh, what Beethoven would be thinking 250 years old. Like I said, you like to think that he would be interested in reinterpretations of his music. So now we have a sequential art reinterpretation of a lot of his pieces because every story in the um, collection is based on an actual piece. Well, now you're working on this with Frank, as I mentioned at the beginning, and Frank Marfino, he wrote Haunted Tank back in 2010, Marvel Zombies, Supreme, and Marvel Zombies Destroy. How did you guys divvy up the stories? Did you each take a different composition and write a story about it? It'll be interesting for people who like process stuff, but it's not any kind of dynamic or brand new way of doing it. But uh, Haunted Tank, I was actually the editor. I was at Vertigo for a couple of years uh, as an assistant editor. That was one of the books. I knew Frank. We both knew each other since before we were both in comics. So somebody I've known and broke into comic books. At this point, you could basically say the same time. We're friends. Uh, Again, used to be a local guy down in Florida now, but he's a New Yorker like I am. And as friends, know each other well and simpatico. So it was really easy to kind of divvy it up. The project changed when I was first brought on board, or at least talking about it. Josh Franklin, C2 said, hey, you know, we're just putting an anthology together. You know a lot of people. You know a lot of artists. You can kind of pick your artists and do the stories. And we want to put this together. It was one of several projects that he was working on. It scaled up in the last 12 or 18 months. There was that. I said, okay, that's, that sounds great. And then I was kind of waiting for the green light. And uh, like, you know, I said, hey, are we going to start this thing? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, just waiting on approvals and crossing the uh, I's and dotting the T's. It's not like we needed Beethoven's approval, right? But uh it's done in collaboration with uh, Deutsche Grammophon, who keeps all his stuff in print, and they had a big say. I had a lot of participation in this. And finally, it's like, okay, you're ready to go. And I was like, all right, now let me start thinking about it. But by then, just the way the internal processes at the publisher worked, oh, there's already artists assigned. Uh, there was a new editor, Rance Hosley, who's been around a long time. I've never worked with him before, but you know, he certainly had as deep a Rolodex as, as I did and had all these kind of guys already assigned that we we're going to be using. And at that point, kind of my role or what I anticipated doing was going to be a little bit less because Frank, the vision of that was, Frank, here, you get a head start on the stories, the historical stuff I'm going to lean on you for. Even the basic structure stuff and putting it together, it was kind of both of us, but then Frank made sure all the pieces fit, which is uh, an important thing to do because there's a through line to it. There's a spine. There's both a story through line, but also, you know, we hope that the order of the shorts, that was done with some amount of care. He did all of that, and he did it fantastically. There's a couple of stories that I probably did 90% of, and there's certainly a couple of stories that he did 90% of. And very few would have kind of been split, and those were kind of the ones that were maybe left over, where it's like, oh, I was going to do it, but then he wound up finishing, something like that. But uh, as close as we are, once we had kind of the whole book mapped out, we kind of both did our own things different stories. So when I flip through it, whether it's 10 years from now or or next week, 
and say, oh, I know which ones I kind of did and which one Frank kind of did. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a team effort. All the work that you did on this book, the research and everything, was there anything about Beethoven that you didn't know that surprised you? We all know that he went deaf or practically deaf while he was still composing. Anything else you discovered about him? Nothing as interesting as kind of thinking about the things I already knew. That he did lose his hearing. Probably a lot of people know that, right? But, you know, what are the actual particulars of it? How old is he? How did that affect his music? You can kind of dream about those things and think about them, but when you're going to apply it to an actual story and say, how are we going to take this real-life condition, even if you're going to make it into a story about uh, singing animals, you know what I mean? You have to turn it over in your head a little bit more than maybe if you heard it on a podcast or blitzing through an article when you don't really even know how you got there on Wikipedia or something like that. So the fact that he was such a force of nature, which just put down different combinations of notes and sound and pace and tone, the fact that he had lost his hearing. Probably one thing I didn't know so well, but it's a universal theme, is he's a bit unlucky in love. And, I, and people even do know that, the immortal beloved. There's always these mysteries around it. So those kinds of things that anyone might hear after they heard a half-hour documentary on his life would kind of get, to be able to turn those over in my head and really focus on them and the process of turning them into stories really makes you kind of think about them in a totally different way than if you were just kind of studying or like I said, a biography. It was that type of stuff that you really gained an appreciation for it. When you have to listen to something three or four times in a row to really try to get it in your head, you know, the focus really does bring up a lot. Again, the creative process to turn that into comics pages is, um, you know, profound in a way. I don't want to overstate it, but someone who's such a genius and an icon, it's, yeah, this was a real guy who did all this stuff. And here I am in my apartment in New York City trying to make a comic for a couple of guys I know and with a couple of guys and gals that I know. Makes you think sometimes about your place in the universe. Those kind of grandiose things weren't anything that Beethoven shied away from. Now, they say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Of course, we also know that a cover can get someone's attention. Wow. You have David Mack providing the cover art. It had nothing to do with me. I think it was Rance, the editor, landed David Mack. It might have been Josh, the publisher. I knew David Mack was doing it. And I said, well, that could be really cool. That's great. And biased, but I can tell you when I first saw it, I thought it was a fantastic cover. It was an amazingly strong piece. You know, there's some variations to it even that wind up in some of the design of the book and when the album's attached and everything else. I love it. Yeah, it's a great David Mack. I didn't uh, have anything to do with that uh, except, uh, except to enjoy it like everybody else. Now, who else is contributing to the book in terms of the art? It's a ton of people. I'm afraid I'm going to leave somebody out, but I think it's 12 or 13 artists hmm. total. Only a handful of people I've worked with before. And that's when holes and new stuff started uh, opening up. And like I said, Rance um, kind of brought in the rest. But uh, Ryan Kelly, who's a name people might know, did a cool story. Beethoven has this little piece, Ruins of Athens, which is kind of his reinterpretation of an ancient Greek myth. So we reinterpreted it for 2020. Uh, he was cool. Alice uh, Michi Lee, who I've known for a long time, is doing this cool painted fable. So it's all different kinds of styles. Chris Lee, who's a new guy who I've uh, really liked, uh, expect big things out of a name everyone will know. He did a story with uh, the aforementioned Alice Sarah Ott, where we kind of worked with her very much hand in hand. There's a couple of stories in there with some of the, you know, like I said, modern classical style musicians, composers, performers. Alice Sarah Ott really wanted to tell her story 
And so that was kind of cool to bring. She's kind of a fan of some comics, but casual, and she draws little doodles. So we were actually able to uh, bring in some of her doodles, working with Crease into the story to put it together was a lot of fun. You know, for any kind of consistency, Justin Birch lettered the whole thing. Almost all of it is colored by Aladdin Collar, and there's a lot of different cool people. Like I said, uh, it'd be a long list if I just went through all of them. So hopefully during the course of the conversation, I'll try to spread the well. And the book is twenty four ninety nine, but that's the regular edition. There is limited to 1200 hardcover with a slipcase, and you'll have three prints and the exclusive album, which is kind of a... Beethoven's Greatest Hits, double record. Do you uh, have a vinyl collection? Do you listen to records on vinyl anymore? I haven't for a long time. Vinyl's a little bit older than I am, but not too much. And um, your parents, older siblings, et cetera, say, oh, there's vinyl. So for a long time, I kind of kept a collection of vinyl. Over the years, you, you move around and who has a record player anymore? You don't have it. But truth be told, about a year and a half ago, because there's so many kind of sidewalk sales and flea markets and stuff like that, and there's always kind of cool albums, I did started picking up some and I bought a pretty good quality spent like 90 bucks on a turntable and plugged it in with my older daughter it was just kind of a fun thing to do to kind of dig through because you can pick up a an old album for two or three bucks over on Bleecker Street and see what it's all about and so I do have a turntable ready to go when I get my copy Final Symphony so I'm looking forward to it I've seen the whole book but I haven't seen the deluxe uh, package yet when I talked to uh, Leah Moore about the Doors Morrison Hotel graphic novel and the album coming out, shortly after that, I went out and bought a turntable because I hadn't had one in years, right. and I forgot what the experience was like. So yeah. <laughs> since yeah. then, I've been picking up a few things here and there, and this Beethoven collection sounds great. So I think that's going to find a place on my little shelf of records. You know, I don't know about your personality, but you can definitely go overboard. Yeah. You know, I need a new receiver. I need the better speakers. I need all this other stuff. Oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I just, I just went on Amazon. Said, "Oh, it's a good turntable with a good preamp." And like I think this thing was ninety bucks, and Mm -hmm. it was either Amazon Day or Black Friday two years ago. It's good. You drop the needle, you listen to stuff, and it's a lot of fun to have. And the sound is great because even CDs, who has room for it anymore? So you know, you have something on your phone, you're downloading a song or you're streaming it with maybe iffy headphones, or you're sitting on the subway or you're waiting for something, can't really hear it. So it's nice to be able to actually sit and listen to something. Kind of the same way, like I don't have TV, right? But I have a million things streaming and watching it on your phone or even on your computer monitor is not really a great experience. And, you know, with movie theaters closed down now for the last year and the foreseeable future, you know, you really appreciate a well-presented media experience, right? And so the deluxe edition, I think is going to be really cool. It's a different mix of songs. And that was one of the big concerns that Frank and I had kind of putting it together. Do you want the selection of pieces, and I had to be corrected because I keep calling them songs, and they're not songs if it's Beethoven's pieces, right? Because like we're going to make an album, and it's going to sound like the kitchen sink, you know what I mean? It's going to have all these different kinds of things. Do you embrace that, or do you try to go for kind of a more mellow listening experience that makes kind of more sense, and then throw the stories? But uh, no, we went the opposite direction. I don't even know if Greatest Hits is totally accurate because there's some more obscure pieces in there. Which is kind of cool, right? It is like a sampling. I didn't mix it, obviously. So I don't know how well it's going to all uh, hold together for uh, people who are used to deluxe pressings of classical music. But for me on my turntable, next to a bunch of Village People albums I bought for two bucks, <laughs> it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, I look forward to it. I want to check it out. Yeah, and for me, it is an experience just to sit down and listen to it because I don't just like throw a record on while I'm doing something. It's like, okay, I'm going to sit down and listen to a record now. Time to relax. Um, yeah, I mean, that's always kind of been my way too. And like, you know, people who are a little bit older have that experience more than people who are a little bit younger. 
uh, where it's like, oh, you know, you can like sit down and, and watch something or listen to something or read something. Yeah, and just getting a decent turntable is really all you need because I've had stereo equipment for a long time, so I didn't have to run out and buy all this stuff. It's like, well, this will integrate nicely with what I have already. In fact, uh, my speakers I've had, oh, geez, probably since like the mid-90s. They're so good. Every time I've moved, I've just taken them with me, and they still work. At one move years and years ago, I said it's time to give up the speakers and, like I said, the receiver and all the components. Uh, but I you know, said slowly uh, building it back. Basically through a vinyl collection. And it's funny because comics guy always need bookshelves, right? And you never have enough. And sometimes every uh, couple of years you get, whether it's the itch to do it or the uh, guilt to do it. So I got to go through all my books and kind of get them in order. It's been a mess. If I had to, I would have bought some cheap Ikea bookshelves just to put in the middle of the room to sort my stuff. Because I got like a few thousand books. I, I, I've actually whittled it down. I got about 26 or 2700. And I only know that number because I kind of reorganized everything. So it's okay, I need just a couple of bookshelves to literally sort with. Like you might buy a folding table to help and a couple of other things. And uh, the super in my building said, oh, there's some bookshelves downstairs. Uh, you can just take, somebody had abandoned them in a move out and they were just kind of sitting downstairs. So do you want them? I said, well, I'll take them. I only need them for a couple of weeks and then I'll take them back. And I wound up keeping them because they had these odd shaped shelves underneath. And I couldn't tell what these big square open shelves were for. And, and then somehow I put it together that, oh, my, these are for records. These are for LPs. They fit perfectly in there. So that's how old that thing was sitting in my building's basement probably for 30 years, uh, an old bookshelf, which was actually designed around the bottom four shelves or four records. And the, the ones above it were adjusted, I guess, books or whatever, whatever you can. Oh, so. Nice. Now you have to fill them up. Yeah. Well, that well, that's that's the problem, right? Because you really do. So I said, oh, okay. And it's not a coincidence that that was around the same time. I said, oh, look, they have LPs. Uh, like I said, you always pass it by. And it's like flea market prices. You know what I mean? People try to get rid of LPs. Of course, I'm sure there's a collector's market like there is for comics and everything else. But most people don't know what to do with them. And you can kind of get cool stuff. And I enjoy the larger art and pictures on the albums and looking through it while I'm listening. You just don't get that same feeling with CDs. They're so tiny. Yeah, well, I mean, even if you're CD, you're probably out of touch, right? It's yeah, like, right. It's like, it's like, so what do you what do you get? I mean, you know, I don't know if you click on something on there and then they, I guess they'll reproduce the album art. Yeah. Small on your phone or big on your screen. But no, there is something nice about the tactile nature of things. And, and even bringing it to comic books, you know, as many books as I have, there's a lot and there's a lot of stuff that I don't necessarily have to buy. Um, so I got, uh, you know, a little, uh, tablet about the size of a comic and I said, okay, I can read comics here, stuff that people send me PDFs for. It'd be nice to have it. I can sit and read it. A lot of modern stuff. And by modern, I mean, like literally you're talking about 15, 20 years now, the colors, the computerized colors look so good on the screen back then. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. But yeah, but like, you know, I don't know about everyone else in the world, but like a lot of people, you know, you're in front of a screen all day long. So it's, it's nice to pull a book off the shelf and flip through pages. You know, same with the music, I think. Yeah, it is. Even that reading is kind of an experience because with little kids, and you know what that's like, I don't want to be reading an old comic sitting in bed because they might jump in and say, Daddy! And then it's like, oh, no, 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 stay away. <laughs> so <laughs> the tablets are nice for that so I can just enjoy reading. But again, with the older books, I, okay, I'm going to go away. <laughs> I'm going to go read for a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to the graphic novel. It's coming out at the end of December. Ludwig von Beethoven, The Final Symphony. And now it's time to kick back with the creator or ask the fun questions 
I ask all my guests, and I have nine questions. Now, why nine? Nine symbolizes finality. So we're getting to the end of the show. I'll ask you nine questions to learn more about you as a person. Recreation. What do you like to do, Brandon, for recreation? Oh, gosh. Well, there's <laughs> there's not too much to do anymore. Yes. But uh, <laughs> I was kind of always, I don't say a homebody, right? But I go enough places in a year for conventions that never really planning my big vacation. Uh, really, when I do have some free time, it's nice to... It's nice to sit and read or, or to, to work on writing. So yeah, so for recreation, yeah, I, I like reading comic books. It's uh, probably sad but true. <laughs> That's all right. That's all I can do right now. What was your favorite birthday and why? For myself, my favorite birthday. I don't know if one of the other seven remaining questions is my least favorite birthday, <laughs> but uh, it is. It, it said. What's my favorite birthday? Now, it would probably be something stupid and, and teenager that's not appropriate to share. But um, no, like I said, you know, I can tell you my least favorite Christmas very clearly. Yeah. I always wanted. And again, they're a bit before my time, but they were around. If you're in your 40s and up, you might remember Shogun Warriors. And there's the Marvel comic, like the tall plastic Japanese robot. Yes, you know, I do. Uh, kaiju type stuff. Uh, and I always wanted one of those. And I remember my cousins having them. I never had one. My brothers didn't have it either. And they would ask me what I wanted for Christmas. The whole Santa thing must have come early to me. But um, I was like, oh, that's all I want. And every Christmas, I remember not getting the Shogun Warriors. And they might have been too old. They might have been like my cousins had them for three or four years and they weren't making them anymore or something like that. But yeah, that was my my least favorite Christmas was not getting my Shogun Warriors. And I still remember it uh, to this day. My favorite birthday. Every birthday is actually pretty good, but I don't do too much. I'm, I'm, I'm really flunking these questions. <laughs> no, that's, there are no wrong answers. Hopefully there'll be a big turnaround on, on the remainder. Okay. Well, thinking back to junior high, what posters? Oh, junior high. Yes, there you go. Oh, posters. Oh, this is good. All right. What was on your bedroom wall? Uh, I had, uh, like I said, uh, I had a poster of Mike Zek, uh, Captain America, mm -hmm. where he was kind of sideways, jumping on a bunch of whole guys and some bullets, flying off of his shield. Nice. I had the big Marvel Universe poster that was from literally the Marvel Universe, um, the second edition, which I kind of had the white background of the Marvel Universe series that had like volume one would be like all the characters that begin with the letter A and so on and so forth. Uh -huh. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's a famous poster now. because I'm just going to guess that it was maybe maybe six feet by six feet. It was really big. It's probably worth a couple hundred bucks now if you have one. But I had a very small room that basically took up uh, an entire wall. And then I had a turtle tank with the uh, Captain America poster over it. And I had an Indiana Jones movie poster as well. That was pretty cool. That would have been junior high. Now, this is a hypothetical situation. You're stuck on a deserted island. You only have one book to read for pleasure. What book or set of related books do you want to have with you to pass the time? It's one of my favorite books, but for some reason, it sounds especially good on a deserted island to pass the time. I'm a big uh, Gru fan by mm -hmm. Sergio Gorones. As much as I love them, I don't know how different <laughs> they are year after year, but uh, I was reading them when they were an epic, you know, uh, Marvel, which ran for, I think, 120 issues. A nice stack of Sergio Argonas grew, which I like because as much as they're funny and they stand together, you can both read them and kind of not think about it, or you can sit there and pour over it and say, oh, look at all the look at all the love that went into those ridiculous little stories. Great lettering by Stan Sakai. And uh, you got to give credit to the uh, the dialoguing. Uh, I think Sergio and, you know, kind of put it all down, but uh, it's Marco Vanier who uh, 
clean that all up. It was, it was really good stuff. I wish I could recall the color. I'm a professional. Great stuff. That's a good one. And what is your beverage of choice when you're relaxing? Um, I don't drink, and that's and there's no political reason for that. I never got a taste for it. And I think if I ever drink, I kind of go from drinking to getting sick, right? Mm-hmm. Do you like uh, a little amaretto in hot tea if you want an interesting order? The beverage of choice is probably water. But I will say I live in New York City, so uh, my refrigerator, I don't have a water line to it. So I, I don't have the option of having an ice maker uh, in my refrigerator. But I did buy a separate ice maker because I, I very much like to have ice. And so it's kind of cranking all day long. It's my luxury. It's something cold. So I guess it's probably water with my, my igloo ice maker cranking out some ice. Cream. <laughs> all right. Because you could put it in trays, obviously, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's not living. You know, I, I need it. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I need to hear it kind of tumble out of the, yeah. the term and it's ready. <laughs> okay. This one requires a little more thought. What is the one that got away? And that can be an opportunity, a project, something you wanted to buy. However you wanted to find it, the one that got away. Well, it's usually a girl, right? But uh, oh, sure. my, my, my wife will get mad if I <laughs> So the one that got away. I, I, you know, it, it's um, I'm hesitating. I can't say it. So I'm trying to think of a substitute. Uh, there was an opportunity to do a project that would have been really cool to do. And I kind of, it was kind of my fault that I blew it. It was like 75% my fault. But uh, I said, oh, if I only had just done one or two things differently, I would have gotten to do this book with a, an artist I really wanted to work with. But I can't say it because then it's putting that project kind of on uh, on blast. But similar to that, I always like doing podcasts and doing it. And for a little while, uh, Amy Reader and I were doing podcasts together. And the one that got away, which I can talk about, which was another opportunity, DJ Wheat, who's like a, like a high up guy at Twitch, he really liked comics and he really liked our podcast. He said, come to Twitch, you guys should be doing your podcast on here and I'll push it and we'll make it work and it'll be great and you'll get thousands and thousands of uh, listeners and it'll be fantastic. And we did everything and we did everything we we're supposed to do and it just went over like a lead balloon. We actually had less people. And we preserved the audio and still kept it for the regular listeners uh-huh. that we did. You know, we did it once a week or anything else like that. But even that went down after we started doing this whole Twitch thing. And there was no reason for it except, you know, sometimes you strike out. And that was one that got away because I like doing that type of stuff. And that kind of would have next leveled it. And it never came to pass. And uh, nobody's fault. If you could figure it out, I'd be amazed. I can't figure it out. You do everything that you're supposed to do, and hey. There's no way I could figure it out. But I had the guy who, like, yeah, not only was, like, great at it himself, but was in charge of it for Twitch, like, walking us through things. Never got escape velocity. Crashed on the launch pad. That's, That's crazy. Say. Yeah, it was quick and swift. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, I mean, like I said, that, that's the worst thing that happens. They live a good life. You took a chance. Oh, yeah. And that's my next question. Finish this phrase. I took a risk when... I've taken a lot of risks, to be honest. Not that, not that I'm a tough guy or a fearless guy or anything like that. But um, I took a risk when I was 19 years old. And there was a comic shop in Scarsdale, New York called Alter Realities that was going out of business. And for the princely sum, there were three partners who ran that store. And for the, uh, like I said, the incredibly high amount of $6,000, I was able to buy into half of the store with one of the partners. So two guys left, put in a little, that little bit of cash. And uh, like I said, as a 19-year-old, uh, I was going to college and bought into that store 
I was able to work there for a number of years, sold my interest on it, it was going strong until maybe three or four or five years ago now. I'm closed up, but you know, for a good, you know, seven or eight years, I was doing that on and off, but mostly full time. When it came to school at a comic shop, I, I picked a comic shop. Uh, and that was a pretty big risk. I was able to, like I said, turn it around. It was right when trade paperbacks and being more, because comic shops that I grew up with were like collectors, right? Like you said, oh, you can buy back issues and you can do all mm-hmm. The new issues are always the bread and butter. But it was at a time when I, like I said, when I was 19, which is about 25 years ago almost, it was focused on the readers instead of the collectors. And that kind of got me more interested in Tokyo Pop versus maybe another more uh, mainstream comics type of publisher. When I was done with Tokyo Pop, that kind of led me to Vertigo instead of maybe sticking around at Marvel or DC. From there, I started to kind of do my own things like Rocket Girl and even Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur as opposed to kind of like traditional superhero stuff, uh, which leads me to the work I'm doing now, which I'm all glad for to be able to do that. But yeah, for a 19-year-old kid, I used to sell stuff at conventions, and that's how I kind of knew that. That was a big risk because I, I didn't have six thousand bucks, but I was able to I had a few thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I borrowed money from my girlfriend, which is like, would give me a heart. But I wound up marrying her, so she got paid back and then some. And uh, yeah, and then I borrowed, I think it was eleven or 1200 bucks from my father and a thousand bucks from my girlfriend. And I had some money saved because I was selling comics and I sold off. Some so I had about four on myself and I borrowed two. I don't know if I even had a credit card. <laughs> I, I don't think I could have walked into a bank and gotten a loan or anything. The reason the store was going to go out of business, it was it was after kind of the crash, mm-hmm. Marvel values and all that stuff in the, in the early 90s or mid 90s. Now today, what is your guilty pleasure? I've been asked that question before. Again, I never have a good answer for it. You know, I can't say reading comics. That was way too lame. Um, and I don't feel guilty about that also because it's my job. Maybe my ice machine, but then I'm repeating myself. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm not without vices, but I don't take pleasure in the things that, that I should feel guilty about. I'm not a moral type of person. What I feel guilty about, not getting up and getting work done or being late on something. I work from home, right? So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I don't have to go and do anything. So my whole life is an indulgence, basically. It's either kind of, I got to feel guilty about all of it or none of it. I guess I just landed on none of it, which is good. Maybe good for my uh, art. Uh, so last question, what's next for you, work or pleasure? Yeah, well, I'm doing a lot of things in work and I'm always hesitant about announcing things too soon. I won't leave you with nothing, right? So um, it's, um, no, uh, you know, like I said, so Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, you know, talking about how that's kind of a square peg and a round hole. It really opened up a lot of opportunities in children's publishing. It's all comic stuff. You know, there's always a little bit of TV and, and audio and a YA novel or stuff like that that I kick around. But I stay pretty much with comics. The difference is it's for book market publishers. So instead of Marvel and DC, it's for Penguin, Random House, you know, for Scholastic, it's for those types of companies where it's longer in two ways. One, you have to have the whole book done first, right? So it's not like, oh, I got 20 issues and I got to kind of crank it out and they're just keeping the wheels spinning so it shows up on a Wednesday. But they want it all done and then they have like a year of the selling process. And then COVID kind of messes everything else up now. It's a very long way of saying I'm working on couple of original graphic novels for kids and, and the young market. I'm going to be working with Natasha Bustos on a creator-owned thing. People who don't know my devil dinosaur, girl, collaborator. I'm doing a book with uh, Aletha Martinez, a penguin. Uh, that's going to be a kid's book about a girl who's a uh, grandfather. She's estranged from half of her family. It's called a Secret Book Club. And um, her grandfather, who she never knew and she didn't know her father either, was 
famous comic book creator in the 60s, very much a Stan Lee type of archetype. She's off in Nebraska or something, has to come to spend a summer with her in-laws who are all much closer to this Stan Lee type character. You know, like any good story, learn a bit about herself and everything else. But the mystery of like where kind of ideas for superheroes and stuff come from. And that should be coming out. Uh, but still, it's going to be a year before that pops on the show. Stuff like that. Like I said, a secret project. Uh, the Natasha Bustos is going to be a sci-fi project, but also for younger readers. Yes. And they have a couple of other things, too. But one of the things that, as a professional, you try to uh, do, because it's important, is always stay on the shelf. Because you don't want people to say, oh, what's he doing? What's he working on? If I get some interest in someone working in television or these original graphic novels, it's been a long time. That's why I'm happy to be working Beethoven, because it's like, ah, it's, it's the only thing I've really done since, uh, at least that's been on stands, right? It's been available to buy since uh, Moon Girl. But you've got a lot going on. But for now, we'll be looking forward to Ludwig von Beethoven, The Final Symphony. And that'll be out December 2020. Brandon, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you for having me. was a fifth of Beethoven by Walter Murphy that came out in 1976. I bought the single. Yeah, I have the vinyl still. And it was included in the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. And if you were around in the 70s, you probably liked it too. You just don't want to admit it. It was one of the hottest selling movie soundtracks and it got a lot of radio play and all the kids loved it. Just another example of Ludwig von Beethoven's influence on pop culture in the 20th century. Coming up in two weeks, a great actor and playwright will be joining me to talk about their graphic novel based upon their one-man play about a great American leader. And this is the actor who has a connection with Star Trek. Have you guessed yet? He is my next guest in two weeks. This show comes out every other Thursday, except for special occasions and holidays. And you can find it on your favorite podcast catcher. And you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. I'll be doing things a little differently in 2021. Rather than posting my comics on Saturdays and Sundays, I'll be doing it at random. If you would rather see them on Saturday and Sundays, well, you know how to reach me at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. If you want to connect with me directly, please email me creatortalks at gmail.com that's creatortalks at gmail.com that is the best way to reach me I'm not on social media all the time and contacting me directly through social media publicly unless you know me is probably not the best way I would highly recommend sending me an email and how can you find that email only by listening to the show and you are listening to the show and I really appreciate it and I will let you know through Twitter and we'll share that with all my followers those of you who engage with me frequently either through email or through social media Creator Talks is a passion project of mine and I do not have any kind of financial support either through Patreon or through sponsorships so the show is mine to decide what direction it will go and what kind of comics and books I'll be talking about with my guests I hope you enjoy it and if you do please tell a friend and leave a review on Apple Podcasts that's all for now For Creator Talks, this has been your host, 
Christopher Calloway. Until next time.